there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> Probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds. You're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean... Um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. I'm happy to be joined this week by Hale Varsity's resident Phoenix Suns fan, Jacob Padilla. Jacob, hello. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's, it's a pretty good week. It's been a while since I've had you on the podcast, but this was, uh, so I apologize for that, first yeah. of all. Um, but this was, uh, this was a perfect week to to i guess stop the skid and bring you on um so we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the phoenix suns because i think it's super fascinating what's happening in the nba right now and what's kind of happened what's kind of unfolded over adam silver's first however many years as commissioner of the league um he's dealt with some pretty interesting stuff and i think that there are a handful of people out there who would say that he hasn't exactly handled everything perfectly well um so i want to talk to you a little a little bit about sarver a little bit about the Suns. Nebraska's obviously on a bye week this week. Um, I have no interest in talking about Oklahoma, except for I do want to share a story with you. So my brother, um, who lives in Oklahoma, obviously, he is a diehard Oklahoma State person, Oklahoma State fan, wanted to go to school there. The plan was to go to school there, and then some things changed. Um, so he texts me before Saturday, and he's like, I'm pulling for Nebraska this weekend. I need a Nebraska win. I think they can do it. I think they can do it. And I was like, I don't think they can, Daniel, but I, I appreciate the optimism. And he's like, no, I feel it. I feel it. Some things have changed. I like the tone that Mickey Joseph has struck. I feel it. And I'm like, I don't, but we'll we'll see. Um, and we're kind of texting back and forth before the game starts. And I'm like, I, I just don't, I have a bad feeling about this game. I think there's going to be some energy in the stadium. And when Oklahoma scores its first touchdown, I think that energy is going to start to dissipate. And Nebraska has its opening drive where it just walks down the field. And I get a text from my brother that goes, would you, would you care to, to, would you care to walk back some of your comments? Would you care to reassess? And I just responded, no. (laughs) And he's like, but they looked good. And I was like, they always look good on the opening drive. This is what they do. This is what happens. And then Dylan Gabriel rips off the long run and I just text him, told you. And then the ball just rolls downhill from there. Um, and in that way, I guess Scott Frost is a little absolved. A little? A little bit? Because was it, I mean, it, there was a lot of people making the joke that, that you know, we finally got changed with Nebraska football because Scott Frost departs and they suddenly don't lose a game by one score. Um, so there's that piece of it. But some of the stuff was still there. Surprise, surprise, you can't change bad line play in a week. Yeah. Um, so that happened. That happened. It's a good time for a bye week, Jacob. It's an excellent time for a bye week. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about Chenander going out because that was the big news in the aftermath of the Oklahoma game that uh, Eric Chenander is no longer going to be the defensive coordinator for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, um, which 
I, I guess like shouldn't be surprising because at the end of the season, most of the staff is going to, if not all of the staff is going to depart and head elsewhere. Um, but I think it was probably, I mean, it was surprising to me at least that it happened. So like immediately after the Oklahoma game. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit, but this, the big like sports news of the week is that an NBA owner is selling his franchise. Well, the, the big sports news until late on uh, Wednesday night when more NBA news uh, started to leak out. Uh, we're going to talk about the storm, that but <laughs> We're going to talk about that one because I got thoughts on that one too. Oh, boy. You're talking about what's happening with Boston, right? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. I got, I got thoughts on that one too. And it's funny because these are intertwined. Um, we'll talk about that one. Um, Robert Sarver announced that he's going – who's the majority owner of the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Mercury. Uh, he's the manage. I, I forget the term, but he's not the majority owner. Forty percent. Uh, what I saw. He's, he's got. He's less than that. It's like thirty oh, some percent. Okay. He's not the majority owner, but he is the uh, managing controller. owner. Like yeah, managing managing partner. I think. Okay. Is something like that. But yeah, he is the controlling uh, of the ownership group. He has the largest uh, st- stake in the, the franchise. Okay. So thank you. Um, he, he announced that he plans to start the process to sell the team, (laughs) um, in the, in the statement talked about how he had hoped that after an NBA investigation unveiled that he used, uh, racially insensitive and, uh, you know, displayed some misogyny in the workplace, uh, that he had hoped that I think the word that he used was atonement that there was a path to forgiveness for him and he could continue to be the owner of the Phoenix Suns or continue to be part of the ownership group of the Phoenix Suns. But due to a, quote, current unforgiving climate, he doesn't see that happening. So he's going to sell the team. So poor poor Robert Sarver is going to have to get a billion dollars uh, for a team that he purchased for $400 million, however many years ago. Two billion, poor, probably. Poor Robert Sarver. I, the, the thing that I was reading was that the, the Phoenix Suns are – Sportico hasn't valued at 1.92 billion. I think there that there are people that think that he can get that they can get three for the Suns, and given his ownership stake in the group, that would give him like a billion out of the sale, something in that range. Like he's gonna make more money than what he bought the team for. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he's gonna make a lot of money. So that's why you buy professional sports teams. Because in that way, yeah. I have zero sympathy. For you, Mr. Robert Sarver, poor guy getting canceled while getting a nice big fat check that is more money than I'll ever see in my entire lifetime. I don't feel bad for you. You're a Suns fan, though, Jacob, and you've been dealing with this man for years and years and years. And a handful of owners in the NBA just like to be in the public spotlight. I, you could ask, you know, 10 NBA fans on the street who owns the Phoenix Suns. And I would bet I would bet maybe four or five of them could tell you Robert Sarver's name. You could ask those same 10 people who owns the Orlando Magic and n- nothing. You get nothing. No one would know. This man has been very public. So how do you feel about him no longer being associated with your team? Yeah, well, I mean, Suns fans have hated Robert Sarver for a long time. Back when we just thought he was a bad owner who wasn't willing to spend and like to meddle and um, all those sorts of things. Then you start to hear stuff like this and, oh, he's a terrible person on top of being a terrible owner. So yes, please, please get out of, uh, get, get away from my franchise and um, just go away is pretty much how 
I think we've approached it. And then just kind of the, as this process has played out, like, like as a collective, uh, uh, science fans have kind of grown angry and angrier at, at not him and the, the league and the franchise and the other executives that supported him. Cause you read off like some of the key points from Sarver's final message, but uh, I think the timeline. So Baxter Holmes put out the story and the Suns got word of like the story coming out way back. I don't even remember when this was now. It was, it was November uh, of 21. Yeah. Like last year um, and put out an adamant denial, um, like just blasting Holmes and his reporting and uh, saying none of this stuff is true. And, all that type of stuff. So Sarver issued that statement through all the Suns channels uh, with support of a lot of the executives, key among them, Jason Rowley. Um, so that goes up and then the report comes out and then the NBA launches their investigation over the past, the entire year. Um, and then finally, um, recently, the NBA comes out with its findings and basically backing up most of what Holmes reported. And um, so, by the way, the uh, the Suns deleted the tweet with the statement uh, off their Twitter feed, but they left it up on their website. Um, so, yeah, that, that was great. Um, and then they, some, some of the reporting around it, like, put out a kind of a grudging statement, like, even still within that, like, servers, like, he doesn't, doesn't agree totally with, um, all the findings and whatever. And then I think what uh, was it Woj that reported that <clears throat> he uh, disagreed with the punishment. And like most of us are all here, like what, just a year punishment. That's the year suspension. That's it. Like that's all he's getting for all this. Um, and meanwhile, behind the scenes, he put up a stink about um, the punishment he did get. And like at, at no point has he showed any kind of remorse. You, you saw that in the, the statement. He's still, refuses to acknowledge the, the gravity of his wrongdoings and all the people he hurt. Um, just, he said, mentioned the unforgiving climate. There's no such thing as forgiveness when you don't show remorse, when you aren't willing to show, like, you believe what you did was wrong. You, you, can't, you can't ask for forgiveness when you don't under, understand or acknowledge the scope of your wrongdoings. So, like, there's in the, the typical, oh, Look at all the good I did, um, putting that out there like multiple times within the statement, trying to, wow. So he's making note of all that without, again, acknowledging what he did uh, at, at any point in there. So just every step of the way, it's like, just just go away. Like it's, it's so, it's kind of sickening reading everything that's come out from him and some of the, the stuff from the Suns. Um, there definitely needs to be an overhaul once they they make the the ownership change some of those executives that signed on that supported sarver they need to be out too um because this is clearly uh goes beyond just one man it's just uh, all the people that enabled him that are still that were still supporting him as this reporting was coming out um it's i'm, I'm glad that again we we're starting to reach the resolution but it, it's been a very frustrating time to be a Suns fan, especially when this is happening as a franchise is at its highest point since I've been a fan of the team, basically. Yeah. So the punishment that, that he was handed down from the NBA was a year suspension and a $10 million fine. 
I have the Baxter Holmes report on the the punishment pulled up. Um, and there's a section that I want to read. It says, while the NBA stated that Sarver, quote, cooperated fully with the investigative process, leak sources told ESPN's Baxter Holmes and Adrian Wojnarowski that he was unaccepting of the idea that he deserved a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine for his behavior. The punitive part of the process became largely acrimonious, sources said. And then his statement on the suspension, which you alluded to, he opens with, while I disagree with some of the particulars of the NBA report, I would like to apologize for my words. And then in his statement where he says he's selling the team, which again, you you just alluded to, he says words that I deeply regret now overshadow nearly two decades of building organizations that brought people together and strengthened the Phoenix area. Mind you, the suspension was because the NBA found that he, on multiple occasions, used the N-word and that there were, quote, instances of inequitable conduct toward female employees, including sex-related comments and inappropriate comments about employees' appearances. It's more than just words. Doesn't That, that doesn't sound like bringing people together if you've got a bunch of people in your organization that don't want to be part of your organization. The thing that's fascinating to me is I don't, like, I, I tried to put myself in Sarver's shoes and like, he's not somebody like if you gave him the opportunity, if you gave him the choice and said, you can have a billion dollars and no Phoenix Suns basketball, or you can remain an owner of the Phoenix Suns team. I'd probably choose the money because if I remained part of the Phoenix Suns organization, I would not feel welcome inside the building. Oh, and, and- that's kind of what I was wondering too. Like at a certain point, so backtrack real quick. The you, you said you, you mentioned the punishment, just one year suspension, and Adam Silver came out and had his press conference explaining the punishment and um, the, their findings and all that. And there were some truly terrible quotes in there, but essentially the 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 bottom line was I don't have the power to force him out. Um, this is the extent of what we re- we could. I, not really like he could ex- suspend him for more than one year, but um, I, I think at this point, the what we're seeing now is I think what the NBA was hoping to see. They they just wanted the public, the court of public opinion, and the sponsors and the people around Phoenix. They wanted them to do their work for them to force Sarver out um, because Silver works for the owners, and the owners don't want the precedent of terrible uh conduct uh resulting in having to give up your team and at least in this way it's sarver's own choice um he he's gonna like you said he's gonna have a nice little uh um, parting gift uh when he sells this deal um but we saw immediately paypal said hey if he's still here at the end of the suspension uh we're not re-upping with the franchise we see city council members calling like i think the politicians in Arizona were like publicly saying, Hey, we're going to look into what we can do um, to force a resolution here. You've got players around the league, both in uh, some well, players directly the team saying that yeah. the NBA's punishment was a failure. Like yeah. you have Chris Paul saying that, that there needs to be more done. Well, and you're in like, that's yeah. And that, and honestly, like the, the Suns players could have, and I would have liked to see them go harder in the paint in this instance, but I understand they're in a difficult situation. And this, again, this shouldn't be on them. It's not their responsibility, but 
um, he's, like the extent of his, uh, we don't think the punishment was enough. Um, whereas you've got Draymond Green going on his podcast and saying, no, get this guy out of here. Um, and that's kind of what you need. So that's the whole time I was wondering, like, what, like before we knew for sure that he was selling, I was like, why would you want to be in this situation where people clearly, nobody likes you, <laughs> basically, like you said. Um, and I think part of that's just the ego of being a sports owner. And again, like they, uh, he sells it now, he's going to make what you said, two, three billion, or going to sell it for two, three billion. Save it for another few years. Once the TV deal goes up, then what's the franchise value going to be, especially if they continue to, to operate at a high level and, and win a lot. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the point of uh, owning a franchise. It is appreciating in value every single year, and you're always going to make a ton of money when you do finally cash out your checks. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, it, it's unfortunate that you had to put this responsibility on uh, again, the players and sponsors and all these people, but that's, I mean, that's kind of capitalism. Like that's the money's going to talk more so than uh, actions and powerful people uh, often are not held responsible for their actions in any other way, except for when the bottom line starts to get impacted. Yeah. Do you think, because Phoenix is a, Phoenix is a, is a unique team in this regard where there have been free agents who have said, I didn't go to Phoenix because of Robert Sarver. There have been situations where players chose not to play for the Phoenix Suns because of the owner who like, like that group or that person is going to sign their paychecks. And depending on, um, I guess how much of a fan of basketball that owner is or how, you know, local that owner is, you know, you're going to have contact with that owner. But I would imagine that the, the, the extent of that contact between player and owner is, is pretty minimal in most instances in Phoenix. That doesn't seem to be the case or didn't seem to be the case. Um, He was around a lot. He seemed to be pretty heavily involved with a different group in place. Like everybody, that I've that I've read since this has kind of all sort of come to a head has sort of said the same thing that Phoenix is is with the right ownership group is going to be like a power player in free agency, a potential destination type of team for free agents. Like, do you think that that Phoenix can I, I, I guess, you know, they're they were in the NBA finals a couple of years yeah. ago. So it's not like they're like still on the ascent, but do you think that they can like sort of solidify themselves as a true team to be contended with year in and year out with the right ownership group? Like, is this that big of a change? I certainly hope so. And um, I mean, the ownership is a huge advantage uh, in professional sports. Like when the, the average owner isn't going to impact things one way or the other, but the really good ones and the really bad ones can really swing the trajectory uh, of your franchise. And we saw that with the Clippers with forcing Donald Sterling out, bringing Steve Ballmer in a guy that, is willing to do anything and everything to help his uh, franchise succeed. And um, we've seen what has happened to the Clippers since that, that ownership change. Um, and so yeah, Devin Booker did so much, Devin Booker and Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre and as they've come along, did so much rehabilitation for this program or for this franchise. Uh, and then convincing Chris Paul that, Hey, this is a place where uh, I, I want to go. Um, so that took that up to another level. So now, after 
decade of uh, relevancy um, and just futility. Um, they finally got themselves back into a respectable place. And you've got players that wanted to come to Phoenix, Chris Paul, and sign uh, a couple of free agents here and there. And uh, now you're winning 60 game, 60 plus games. And uh, it is the next phase is going to be, all right, what do we do in the post Chris Paul era? And it does feel good knowing that Robert Sarver, who was part of the, 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 the many issues the, pro, the, the, the team had, um, will no longer be a part of it moving forward as they look to the post-Chris Paul era. That's just one obstacle out of the way. Um, and not necessarily, like, they may not find a Steve Ballmer that'll come in and one of the richest men in the world who literally doesn't care how much money he spends. He's going to put anything and everything into the franchise. May not get one of them, but if you get uh, you get uh, a good ownership group that is, hey, we're willing to do what we need to do to succeed. We're not going to get in the way. We're not going to meddle. Um, James Jones, Monty Williams, you guys go do what you need to do here, uh, and, and we'll back you up. Like that, that that could be huge for the, the the franchise as it looks to continue steering through the Devin Booker era and into the post Chris Paul um, timeline. So one one more thing that I want to touch on. And then for the people listening to this that are like, I want Nebraska football, we'll we'll get there. One more thing. Um, So you kind of touched on Adam Silver and the press conference that he had. This was obviously the the end game that they wanted. This This was what they wanted to happen. This is what a lot of people in the NBA wanted to happen. Robert Sarver sells the team. He's no longer part of the ownership group. The NBA and all of its league leaders can say that this person no longer represents us. And the NBA is probably happy about that. Well, not probably. They are. They're going to be happy about that. There is there's an issue with that, the way the situation happened, the situation itself, and kind of what's going on with the NBA that I think is not getting talked about enough. They wanted to force out an owner of a team for things that they didn't like, which is which is interesting. And Adam Silver talks about how he didn't think he had the power to do that, but he wanted to do it. And so he kind of set the chips in motion so that it could happen. This is the third time in the last eight years that a situation like this has unfolded in the NBA where racially insensitive incidents, words led to an owner relinquishing ownership of his team. It happened with Donald Sterling and the Clippers. It happened with, the owner of the Atlanta Hawks in 2015. The NBA likes to champion itself as a progressive league, as a league that is forward thinking, cares about all people. LeBron James tweeted shortly after, like kind of news came out that, that uh, I was about to call him Sterling, that Star- that Sarver is going to sell the team that quote, I'm so proud to be part of a league committed to progress to which a number of people made sure to bring up China um, on the other side of the league. While this is happening and the NBA is clapping and championing that it no longer has Robert Sarver associated with, or will no longer have Robert Sarver associated with the league. Ime Udoka, one of the few black head coaches in the NBA is basically getting the Brian Harson treatment at Auburn and getting railroaded out of Boston. 
he's going to be suspended for a year for the entire season or potentially, according to Wojnarowski, for a consensual relationship with a subordinate. And why do we need to know about this situation is my question. And Stephen A. Smith went on ESPN's first take Thursday morning and basically did the Brian Windhorst thing where like, what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean? Where he essentially said that, hey, this same situation is happening with other people in other organizations all around the NBA. And the difference between those situations and this situation is the color of skin of the parties involved. Ime Udoka report, allegedly broke team rules and violated team code of conduct. And so he's getting a punishment for that, which is fine. My question is, why do we need to know what he did? Why do we need to know about his private personal life? Because what I have seen since it was made known what he did is pictures and commentary of female employees in the Boston Celtics organization plastered all over Twitter, talking about appearance, talking about lives, talking about jobs, gross stuff. The NBA has a, has a problem that just removing Robert Sarver from the Phoenix Suns is not going to solve. And it is, it, it's just wild that the Sarver situation is happening on one side of the league. Meanwhile, we have this unfolding Ime Udoka situation happening in Boston, which is a situation. And like, it, I understand he, if he broke team rules, it's fine, issue a punishment. But it is a little absurd to me that we need to know about an intimate, consensual relationship in his private life. Yeah, so um, I'll try to work my way through this because this whole thing is very strange and convoluted how this news. So first you had the the Woj tweet with the weird smiling graphic uh, breaking news from Woj. Like, duh, it's on your Twitter account. We know this is breaking news from you. Um, where very vague, hey, uh, Yudoka could be facing a suspension for violation of team rules. And basically that was it as the initial tweet. Um, and then followed up like with followed up with uh, a, oh yeah, Ime's a great coach that just did this, this, like, you know, like Woj does. Always got to include some, some kind of positive spin on a report. Uh, but then, yeah. But then, uh, then Shams comes in, Shams Farania, uh, like, you know what? I, I'm, I'm dropping the T here. And it, it says this is what it was for. Um, and then so just kind of the way the news has kind of continued to dribble. It's been weird. On the one hand, to your point, like, yeah, like the, the private personal life, all that type of stuff. But on the other hand, he is in a very public um, facing job. Um, he is a, a public fi figure. And you can't simply have him not show up to work at the start of the season and like if you say oh he's suspended and give like nothing at all there's no kind of explanation whatsoever like violation of team rules yeah uh that, that's yeah that's, that's, all, that's all you I, say there yeah that's not gonna find people are gonna dig around um like you can't just oh yep yeah, no he's suspended for a year um, like, that's, that's they, the point that's the point right well 
but they haven't said like it's the Celtics haven't announced that like that's come out of the report. Um, and that's kind of how this generally works. Um, but like there was going to be some kind of reporting once this happened, once the Celtics moved toward like, Hey, there's going to be a punishment here. Um, the news is going to leak. I a hundred percent is absolutely discussing some of the way that the internet has run with this. And there's some unfortunate comments by public figures. And then you've got just the random Twitter accounts that are again, trying to read the tea leaves and search up and try to figure out who the woman is in this situation. Um, I, I think the, the consensual relationship, that's kind of how it's being presented right now. There's gotta be more details than that for this kind of punishment. Um, obviously you've got some power dynamics at play there. We'll see it. I know, again, there, there's some terrible tweets out there. Like, Oh, once you find out what the real details are, like yada, yada, whatever. Um, like that stuff is gross. Like keep that to yourself. If you can't, if you're not going to put like an actual, uh, like news out there or whatever, but, um, yeah, th- there's just, there's a lot we don't know about this situation. It's, uh, unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to, again, totally react without knowing more details. And again, this hasn't even happened yet. Like they haven't, like it's likely facing a season long suspension and, um, that's kind of where we're at at this point. The Celtics haven't uh, pub, uh, commented publicly yet. That could be coming before this this episode gets posted. But as of uh, the time that we're recording this, uh, hasn't come out yet. So um, it's just a really weird and unfortunate situation, um, especially for again for a franchise that uh, was in a really good spot. Udoka, who put in a lot of work to to get to this position um was really successful uh former player uh breaking in as an assistant and working his way up the ranks and doing a really good job uh with his first opportunity as a head coach and it's unfortunate that um uh, apparent discretions will um tarnish that and potentially end that and but i mean i think there's still some details here that um we don't know exactly how this is going to go just yet so here's here's the point that I, that I'm trying to make. If if you come out and say because their media day is going to be in a couple of days, um, or maybe it's already happened depending on when you listen to this. If you come out and simply say violation of team rules, that's what it was. It's was violation of team rules. He's suspended. Then to your point, yes, people are going to dig, and there's going to be additional reporting, and eventually someone is going to talk to a buddy. Someone is going to to go on the record and say what happened. And eventually it's going to come out for this to, to, to be publicized, to be leaked within 24 hours of, of us first getting word that, Hey, this is something that's coming. says pretty plainly that it's the Boston Celtics doing the leaking, right? right. Like this doesn't, this do, like, it's not like the Los Angeles Lakers are on the other side of the, the country leaking this information. This is the Boston Celtics. If you wanted to keep Ime Udoka as your head coach, this comes out two months from now. And it comes out sort of accidentally, maybe, or it comes out from somebody that is just talking to a buddy or somebody that's trying to advance their career and just talking to a buddy. It comes out against sort of your well wishes. If you want to keep Ime Udoka as your head coach, if you don't, this is what happens. Oh, yeah. If you don't want him as your head coach, this is what you do. 
This is the Auburn playbook. Yeah, which, which I think points to there being a lot more to this than simply Yudoka cheating on his significant other. Um, I think for a coach as successful as he's been, like they wouldn't want to have to, to fire him because he's a really good coach. He just showed that there's got to be something more to this for this to have progressed this quickly, I, I would think. Okay, and to that end, if if that if if the Boston Celtics know behind the scenes that hey, there are these other problematic things happening again. We don't know what's going on because yeah. this is sort of developing. But if if the Boston Celtics know that there are things that are that are problematic going on behind the scenes that they feel like leads to a suspension, fire the guy. That, yeah, that fire the guy because what this does i don't necessarily care about udoka's like public image or his perception or his credibility i care about the other 100% i care about every woman that works for the boston celtics that now has to deal with the was oh, it you but is yeah it you of going on twitter and potentially seeing their face plastered all over twitter simply because they are a woman working for the boston celtics 100%. this is a problem because the Boston Celtics decided that they didn't want to protect women in their organization, or maybe they didn't make that decision. They just didn't think about the fact that this would happen if this was the the plan of action that they took. That's problematic. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that is, like you said, like if something is serious enough to um, result in a season long suspension, then yeah, that's probably a fireable offense, right? right. Like you can't, you can't have a, a guy miss. In, like uh, we've got the what the the Sean Payton uh, New Orleans situation with the the bounty gate. Like that was a, I, I think a situation where uh, coach has been sus- was suspended for a year and then came back and then kind of went on as normal. But it's not a not something that we see often. Like typically. No. You, you either it's a short term suspension or you're fired. Like there's no, we don't see instances where um, coaches like head coaches are suspended for an entire year uh, like this very often. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Like outside of Peyton, um, yeah, but so yeah, to that point, yeah. What is I? You just wonder again, kind of going back to the um, the Sarver thing. Like, is this basically just a result of the rules and politics and all that in place? Like they don't want to get into a legal battle with Udoka. They're like, he's like, we started trying to force him out other means. Like, I don't, you would think though, like if there's something truly wrong here that you could fire with, with cause, but I don't know if they, they're, they're worried about a counter lawsuit from, you I don't, I don't know all this stuff behind the scenes um, that is leading to this point, but you're absolutely right. This is an unfortunate path for this uh, situation to take because of all the people that will be harmed because of it. And we've already seen um, uh, one female staffer for the Celtics had to come out like, hey, not involved in this in any way. Please leave me alone. Um, had her face plastered all over Twitter by some pretty terrible accounts and people running with it. And um, so, yeah, that that is absolutely the unintended consequences of this, um, which, again, that's probably why you'd like to for them to be swift in their actions and decisive like all right this is what we're going to do um because of um like you said violation of team roles we need to we need to make take these actions and the season like maybe a season-long suspension coming 
just been very strange from the start for an unfortunate incident. Um, again, like you said, it's been a been a rough couple of weeks for the league um, here with, with off-court uh, stories here coming out. Yeah, certainly. Um, been a rough couple of weeks for Nebraska. That's going to be my segue. There we go. There's just no way, there's no good way to segue to a no. team that is this that is struggling this badly. Um, Eric Schnander has been fired. This is Nebraska's defensive coordinator. And uh, Bill Bush takes over as defensive coordinator, and they're doing some shuffling around, and somebody else is going to handle special teams coordinator. Um, Bill Bush has previous experience as a defensive coordinator. We'll see how this goes. Very respected coach. Um, we'll see how this goes. But kind of like with the Frost situation, like, you know, how much can a, a coaching change um, help a team in a week, right? And Nebraska's defense has been, I would say, one of the biggest stories at the Power 5 level, just in terms of how truly bad it has been through the first four weeks of the season. Um, they are They have given up in four games 934 rushing yards. Oh, boy. In four games. They're giving up 233 rushing yards a game. If you... <laughs> If you had, you go back in time to 1980, 1980s, and you tell somebody Colorado and Nebraska through the first four weeks of the football season have given up 2,000 combined rushing yards, that person's head might explode. (laughs) Colorado's given up 1,000 rushing yards in three games. Three games. 1,000 rushing yards in three games. Nebraska is giving up 5.7 yards a carry. 233 yards a game. Their defense can't stop anybody at the point of attack. And Shenander was going to take the fall for that because it's, he, he's, I mean, he's responsible for the defense. So it, it, it falls on him. Um, but this is like, this is a deterioration. Brandon and I talked about this after the week zero loss to Northwestern. Brandon and I talked about this. This is a deterioration of a defensive line for Nebraska since. 2019 when they had the Davis twins and the Daniels twins, it's just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller now to the point they can't stop anybody. So my question for you, Jacob, were you surprised to see Chenander let go after the Oklahoma game? Or did you think that he was going to last a little bit longer? Uh, I, I, I guess I, I don't know that I went to bed that night thinking, Oh, um, Chenander is going to be out in the morning. Um, I, but I guess once it happens, like, eh, I, I guess so. I, I just, I didn't know, I guess the reason that I didn't initially think like, oh, this is definitely happening be, is because I, I, how, I guess what, how are you going to be able to move forward? Like what, what is the improvements that you're making by continuing to jettison staff members and promoting from, uh, they had hired or they promoted offensive assistant Mike Cassano to replace Joseph as wide receivers coach after Joseph took over for Frost. So that's one, one coach you're down and promoting from um, the kind of support ranks. And then now you're moving on from Chenander and promoting uh, moving Bill Bush defense, defensive coordinator and promoting Joey Connors, the special teams coordinator. So now in trying to root out the problems with this team, and uh, fix the biggest problems are you simultaneously weakening yourselves in other areas 
without the chance of without the highest chance of success, I guess, and improving. So like, um, are like, like now that you're moving Bush from special teams to defense, uh, well, the defense, the special teams needs to continue to improve. So now are you weakening yourself in that area? In addition to, well, defense, probably there's not much you can do at this point. So that was kind of in my head. Like, can you really afford to just keep kicking out coaches mid season and hope that that will actually improve the, the the program. So that's that's kind of where I was at. But looking at that game, I think it was clear at this point that Shenander just didn't have any answers. And they continued to play the same way. They weren't changing things up, right? Like, I'm not smart enough to, to really dive into the X's and O's and understand what he wanted to do, what he's trying to do, what changes maybe. I know Damon Benning um, talked about this a lot on his show. And um, he... he he had a lot of respect for Shenander and he thought he had, but he had a lot of questions about the personnel heading into the season. And he thought like um, eventually Shenander is going to realize like, Hey, we got to change some things here. Um, like, cause it's not going to work what we've done previously with this group of players. And that just didn't happen. And he said, he came to realize like, well, thing, when things aren't going well, you kind of fall back on what you know. And the way they're trying to play is what Shenander has come to know and been comfortable with. And kind of, it seemed like it's like uh, we just got to do it better. Uh, is maybe the way that he was approaching. I just got to do what, whatever we can to get through. And it was clear that that wasn't going to work. Um, the Oklahoma game, kind of. I mean, I, this Georgia Southern game ex- <laughs> exposed everything. And then following the 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 staff shakeup, like the Oklahoma game, just further emphasized like, hey, Shenander just doesn't have any answers here. So. It's worth trying something new. Um, I know Mickey Joseph talked about, hey, maybe we'll take a closer look at who is on the field and maybe give some other guys chances to, to get out there and see if they can do any better. Um, that's They're going to use this bye week for a lot of self-evaluation in addition to some tweaking and some reworking of some things. Um, so we'll see. But I, I just don't know how much progress you can make in season at this point because, like you said, this is a result of three years of poor recruiting and development. They were so good last year on defense. It wasn't even like they were, they weren't one of the best defenses in the country last season. They were just experienced enough and solid enough to give themselves a chance to win every time they, they took the field. And now you lo- lost all the, the leaders from that defense. And it's clear now that the guys behind them aren't, weren't ready to step in and, it's at all three levels too. Uh, like you mentioned, the defensive line—that's a huge part of it. But the linebackers can't make the are constantly in the wrong run fits. The the safeties are taking bad angles. They're not communicating. The guys aren't lined up correctly at the start, which is both on the coaching and on the communicators on the back end. Um, it's just it, coverage is bad. Like at, at every point, like every level of the defense, they are struggling in every phase of the game. So, I mean, like, what do you do at that point? Uh, it's clear that they needed to try something different. And that's what Mickey said. Like, the numbers weren't just adding up. We owed it to the, the players on the team to try something different, to see, like, at this point, it's clear it's not going to be a good defense. But can we make improvements in some area? Can we, can we fix one part of defense to give ourselves a better chance to hang around in these games to get better? And now that's what they're going to be trying to do moving forward under Bill Bush. This is uh this is turned into the, like the actions and consequences podcast episode. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, <laughs> you mentioned all three levels of the defense, and I've got PFF's numbers pulled up in front of me. Okay. And I know, like, like I know PFF. It's funny. I was listening to a coach press conference this week, and um, somebody's PFF, like the the question that was asked of the coach, included a comment of like somebody's been graded out really well with PFF, and the coach responded. What grade did PFF give them? And he just kind of like smiled. And then he's like, we don't, we don't look at PFF. We don't care about PFF. And it was just kind of like a very backhanded, like, yeah, we don't like them. That being said, Nick Henrich has a 29.2 grade from PFF for the season. 29. See, that, I, I'm, I'm confused about how PFF grading works because – that is lower than any individual grade that he was given in, in the games he's played. Um, like he, he graded out poorly in the games, but um, yeah, he had twenty nine point nine against Northwestern. He had a thirty six point six against Oklahoma. Yeah, anyway, yeah, I, I just don't know how that. I, I, I yeah, I look I, at PF, like you said. I, I look at PF. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I look at PFF. It's just kind of a like I track that stuff every week too just kind of like oh this is interesting um but ultimately the the thing about pff is it is presented as a um and 31.1 the first week anyway um it's presented as kind of like this objective metric um for, for players but it's as subjective as anything else you've got people grading each individual play and ultimately how they grade that comes down to their opinion of it, their like whatever um, kind of criteria that the graders are assigned. So like it's presented as a objective metric, this this number figure to go with it. But ultimately, it, it just comes down to film study and uh, evaluation. And the thing about PFF compared to the actual coaches that grade their players as well is PFF doesn't know what the, the players are being told, what the actual systems are. They can guess. And they can look at it like, oh, this is what this person is supposed to do, but they don't know for sure. Um, that, so, that's my PFF spiel. But yes, uh, that's what you look at. Luke Reimer hasn't graded out well. Nick Henrich hasn't graded out well. Um, Quentin Newsom hasn't graded out particularly well. Like those are the guys that have played previously. So you've got your best players coming back. Ty Robinson hasn't graded out well. So the players that you were relying on to be the kind of cornerstones of the defense they haven't graded out well. So that kind of trickles down to all the new guys that haven't played before and are trying to figure it out as they go with Tommy Hill and Marquise Buford. Like guy like Buford has made some really, really good plays and he's had some big time busts as well. And that's what can you expect with a guy who was a converted corner point starting at safety for the first time in his career after barely playing any snaps as a true freshman. So they're just in a bad spot right now. You don't have star players um, which puts even more pressure on the rest of the defense to have to do more than they're capable of at this point. So that's that's exactly that's exactly where I was going with this because two of their three lowest graded players, and I and I agree with you. I use PFF more as like a, as like a baseline, and I yeah. it's I more look at like you know I think their pressure numbers are pretty good. Some of their missed tackle stuff is pretty. There's some numbers, yeah, some like like stats that you can look at, not grading wise. Um, Ty Robinson and Nick Henrich have not been good. And you can watch the games and come away with that conclusion. And you can look at PFF and come away with that conclusion. They've not been good. And so my question to you is how much of this is just that? Is just those two guys were 
Nebraska brought them in and hoped that they could be stars on defense. And after however many years for each of them in the program, this was the year that that they needed to take a big step on the defensive line. Nebraska loses Tony Tuioti in the offseason, and then Casey Rogers and Jordan Riley jump into the transfer portal, and they've got a bunch of stuff moving around. But Ty Robinson was supposed to be sort of the anchor piece on the defensive line, and he hasn't been that. And Luke Reimer and Nick Nick Henrich have looked have just like traded off with bad reps. They've just not looked good. So how much of this is just, they just missed on some pretty important uh, recruiting targets. Yeah. I, that's, that's a huge part of it. Like I actually, uh, not this week, I think last week uh, I used my Wednesday column writing about the looking at the misses and how we got to this point on defense in particular um, to where they just don't just don't have good enough players. And um, it's, I mean, like Ty Robinson was the biggest defensive line recruiting win for this program under Frost. Mm-hmm. Um, highest rated guy that they landed. Um, six, six, a lot, lot of potential. They put in a lot of, like we heard the recruiting stories, put in a lot of effort to go land him. He played early on, uh, played enough to redshirt his fr- first year, but get some snaps, then started, uh, played quite a bit that second year and then started. Uh, and now this is the year that you needed him to be a guy. And he just has been, he's just been kind of out there. He's made a few nice plays, but he's also gotten washed out far too, too often. Um, and that is I, I, a guy like, like we, we see Luke Reimer be a, a good football player um, uh, and Henrich too, like for stretch. I don't know that like we can look at how poorly they played this year and say, Oh, they just missed on this. I think that's a combination of, all their misses elsewhere culminating. And again, it's a point where you've got guys who are trying to do more than their job. You've got guys like, all right, I got to go make a play here, taking the wrong gap and then leaving uh, and then busting the defense. I would say Uh, exclude Luke Grimer from this conversation because he's made plays for Nebraska and he played well last year. I would say exclude him from the conversation. Well, and that's what I'm saying because he He hasn't played well, but I'm not saying he's a miss. Not like some of the other guys. Yeah. And yeah, Henrich is because uh, some of the although like again he was right behind Reimer last year and what ninety nine tackles he was part of that that second level last year like Henrich he he probably worst game of his career in week one and then got hurt and then missed a couple weeks and now first game back against Oklahoma and it's like yeah welcome back kid so I think he's another one where like yeah he's played poorly this season but I don't think you can write him off the uh, similar to Reimer I don't I think he has showed shown some things but. Um, I don't, a guy like Ryan or like Robinson hasn't shown, I don't think, um, no, he has six him to four do. games. Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't shown what you needed him to. Um, and again, as one of the highest rated defensive players you landed at this time, that's a huge issue because you don't have, you, you brought in the transfers of guys that were just okay players elsewhere. Like Drew played a lot for Texas tech. Like he wasn't a difference player, all difference maker, all conference caliber player. Stephon Wynn was a backup at uh, Alabama that barely played. They've just been guys. They've made a few plays here and there. Uh, mostly they've eaten up snaps and look, haven't looked any different than anybody else. We've got Colton Feast, who's an undersized walk-in out there, who's playing hard and um, doing what he can, but missing some plays because he's not like he's not as physically talented as some of the other guys out there. Uh, and then you don't have any other options behind that. Like none of the guys that you recruited in the last three recruiting classes um, 
have been able to play more than a few snaps here and there if they've gotten on the field at all. Um, so it's the combination of the recruiting, the development, it's culminated in even the players that you have that, that are good players, I, I think playing well under their potential, like the, the guys that we've been talking about. Um, and I, I got like Quentin Newsom, like showed some flashes. You were hoping that he'd take a leap this year and it just hasn't happened. Um, and Miles, same with Miles Farmer. He's like, all right, this is, we need you to make a leap now, and it hasn't happened. And that goes back to the development, um, to like things breaking down in one area, impacting the others, and then falling back. Like, again, all three levels, there are problems on this defense. And I think the problems of the defensive line are resulting in the poor play of the linebackers. And the, lineback- the poor play of the linebackers is putting the secondary – in a bad spot and then they're struggling. And then that's when that happens is when you give up 60 yard rushing touchdowns to uh, the other team's quarterback. Yeah. And I think when, you know, because, because people have wanted Shenander fired for four years. I mean, people have wanted Shenander fired ever since he got to Nebraska. (laughs) Um, There there were people that didn't think that Scott Frost should have brought an American defensive coordinator to the big 10. He should have gone and gotten somebody different. And, I, and I thought early on Shenander sort of proved those people wrong. And I thought Shenander has, has been able to do some, some stuff at Nebraska that I think justified bringing him here, making him the defensive coordinator. There have been times throughout the Frost tenure where Shenander's defense saved Frost from further embarrassment. Um, but when I think about sort of the failure on that side of the ball, and I don't want to pick I don't want this to come off as I'm picking on Colton Feast, but I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna talk about sort of that that approach to their recruiting. It's it this at the University of Nebraska with when when you have ninety thousand fans in a stadium for a team that has won a handful of games in four years still in the stadium, when you have you know, a hundred million dollar football facility being built right next door. That's going to be state of the art. That's going to be one of the best in the country. When you have an athletic department that just prints money, when you have the ability to recruit with anyone, when it comes to NIL opportunities, when you have all of the resources that Nebraska has for your recruiting strategy to be, well, we can take undersized walk-on guys who care about the program and they're going to be able to make plays for us on the defensive line in the Big Ten. That's not a winning strategy. It's just not a winning strategy. I, I, I don't even think it's a strategy. I think it's so that obviously the walk-on program, long story tradition in Nebraska, there's a difference between a Spencer Long rising from a walk-on, I believe he's a walk-on, um, to becoming an all-conference caliber player in an NFL draft pick. And players, and there are four or five, six walk-ons right now that are playing, some of them starting, seemingly because the coaches decide they just can't trust the guys that they actually recruited to play in this program. Like like throwing out, uh, again, you don't want to single out names or anything, but you, you know who we're talking about here. Like they're throwing out guys just because, all right, I, as a coach, I believe he knows what he's, uh, he, he knows what he's supposed to do here. And I can't trust these other guys. There are and, some of those situations, but there are also situations where there are players on the field who continue to make boneheaded mistakes. Oh, yeah. 
And I'm thinking yeah. of one, I'm not going to name him, but I'm thinking of one specific person who kept getting on the field despite having crucial or almost crucial errors. There, there's just yeah. you know, there's there's a weird there's a weird strategy that this staff had with placing a ton of value, maybe more than necessary, on walk-on players being able to to contribute to the program because of how much love they had for the program. I understand that the. the and I, I like I've always been like the anti walk on person on our on our staff. It's like I don't mean to be, but there just seems like Nebraska has too many resources to be in a situation where, well, we don't have any other defensive linemen here. So we're going to put this guy on the field, even though he's a little undersized to play interior. Yeah. Um, well, and offensive line as well. I mean, you, you've got a former walk-on starting in the middle of that because you missed and or didn't attempt to develop um, anybody beyond Cam Jorgens at that position. Um, so it's, and I think self-scouting is an underrated part of being a head coach and just being a coaching staff in general is under, uh, I think sometimes coaches get ideas of players stuck in their head and they can't really see through that. They, they see what they want to or what they believe as opposed to what's actually happening. So like, look, man, think, we all do it. I thought Perry Jones yeah. was going to be great for the thunder. <laughs> yeah. And like that, that happened, like I, I've seen it firsthand at multiple levels. Uh, and I'm sure that I've been responsible for it as a coach as well. It's like, you think you get ideas. All right, this is what this player is. And I'm going to coach to that. Um, and so I, I think we've seen that with this program with some of the guys that have played versus not played. Um, and that's a problem when it's, when the results aren't bearing that out, like it acting that way, like the guys that you're choosing to play aren't getting it done either. And maybe you're sitting guys that could have, or you're putting guys in the wrong position because of like your view of both your, both their skill set and the other guys on your team, like Wandale Robinson, like there's no reason that they should not have used Wandale Robinson as a downfield threat. Like, I don't care that he's five, seven or whatever. He showed at Kentucky that he can actually do it. Let him go run routes. There's no reason. The only way that you can get him the ball is with handoffs and bubble screens. Like that's just failure on you as a coach to be creative enough to understand like what a, a player's full abilities are and um so like that's it just all goes back to this coaching staff from the start hasn't been good enough in any area of the game recruiting development evaluation all of it has been a problem even at scheme at times like we we know scott frost was very good at times of scheming things up but then there are other times and now i'm watching here defense and offense how many times does it look like the other team is in the perfect call for what Nebraska is doing. And that's how we lead to uh, like that, the, the, the draw, uh, the Van Trees go ahead, touchdown um, that draw at the end of that game. Perfect call for that situation for what the defense is in. And they targeted the weak pot weak spot on the defense, which is Ernest Hausman, a true freshman and Marquise Buford, like I said, a converted corner starting at safety, put those guys in a position to have to make a tough decision and they mess up the decision and it's a touchdown. Like they, they've just gotten out schemed all the time. Like it just, every level, this, the staff hasn't gotten it done and they haven't gotten better. They haven't figured out how to get over that. And, and that's ultimately like every year we think, Oh, can they take a step forward? Like you kind of, my problem is I assume a base level of competency 
and time equals improvement and time equals learning. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. And that seems to have been the case here at Nebraska. Did you happen to see, this was, this was fairly recent. Did you happen to see the clip of Dave Aranda talking about sports psychology and sort of being a positive influence for his players? Did you happen to uh, see that? I did not know. If Trev Alberts isn't beating down that door, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we, we, we want Dave Aranda. We the, we the people. We want Dave Aranda. I would not oppose. We want Dave Aranda. Um, Jacob, you probably got to go. You got some stuff you got to do. You have volleyball this weekend. Yes, I do. You have Michigan High school football too. Yeah. Michigan State on Friday. Yep. And Ohio State on Saturday. Yeah. The big one on Saturday. Three versus seven in the rankings right now. Ohio State played the toughest non-conference in the country. Um, so Nebraska will get a t- uh, tough test right out of the gate. And you will have coverage on HillVarsity.com. So make sure if you are not subscribed to HillVarsity.com, to Hill Varsity's, like you, you just need to make sure that you get all of the premium content that you can possibly get. You need to make sure you get the magazine. Do you want to say something? Yeah, uh, along those volleyball lines, uh, uh, I'll go ahead and plug a story that went up today. Uh, I guess as we were recording this on Thursday, actually, um, I talked to Bergen Riley, the 2023 setter commit, who got a last second call up to play for the senior national team uh, for USA Volleyball as a 17 year old. Um, so uh, she went up and got to play down in the Dominican Republic and helped them to uh, a silver medal uh, in the Pan American Cup Final Six. So I talked to her and I talked to the, the acting head coach for that USA team, just kind of. Uh, it's a really rare occurrence to have a high school player playing with the senior national team. So um, I really enjoyed talking to them as well and um, writing that story. So it's a pretty good feature length story there about 2000 words just on how it happened, how it came to be the experience for her. Um, and John, John Cook's got some really good players coming up the, the, the pike. Uh, he is continuing to be on a roll in, in recruiting and Nebraska volleyball is going to be good for a very long time. That's a program that has not missed in recruiting and development. No, he always has one of those players coming. Um, so hailvarsity.com backslash subscribe. So you make sure that you read that. Use the promo code varsity. Make sure that you get this membership up and rolling. Jacob, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. It was good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, keep reading hailvarsity.com. Follow Jacob on Twitter. Read all of his stuff. Shouts to him for coming on the show. Shouts to you guys for listening. I know this was not an entirely Nebraska-centric podcast, uh, but we'll be back next week when Nebraska returns to the football field. Shouts to Cam for producing this episode every week. And we'll be back next week. A Huda Media Production.